0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, it's great to see everyone today. We have already worshiped well, and I think we have much to consider, and uh, even what we've just confessed and professed and sung together. I want us to continue thinking about this Genesis 3 passage so you can, if you have a Bible, just leave it open there. That's where we'll hang out for a little bit this afternoon. Uh, Before we do, I want you to listen to the opening words of John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. Listen to these words. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world. And all our woe with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. It's really great. In just five lines of poetry, Milton, I think, captures and describes very well where the world is. It's full of death, it's full of woe. He captures how we got to this point. Through the, through the disobedience of one man, and he captures and describes, I think, where the world is headed. It's headed towards restoration. How? Through the obedience of another man. Now, Milton obviously draws from the book of Genesis as he writes, and we've been spending time in the book of Genesis as a church this summer. Uh, we're looking at just chapters, Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Genesis, and we're halfway through the summer, and we're only in chapter 3. We're not moving very fast, so we've got to pick up the pace. But here's why we've spent so much time uh, in the first three chapters. Because without understanding the first three chapters of Genesis, it's really hard to make sense of the world. Uh, We could say that Genesis 1 through 3 gets at the root of things. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is kind of the headwaters. It's the source of all that we know and experience. And so we have to understand those things. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the creation of the world. God creates people in his image, and he He causes them to be dependent upon him for life and identity. And he establishes in Genesis 1 and 2 a lot of really good things, things that we experience every day, things like work, things like rest, things like community and marriage. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the story takes a really bad turn, right? And we've been singing about it today and thinking about it today. Uh, Genesis 3 is an uncreation. It is an undoing of all that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. It's an unraveling, so to speak, because sin enters the world and ushers in a new reality that we've been experiencing ever since. Um, Now, I realize to talk about sin uh, is not popular in our broader culture, Um, Many in our culture would probably scoff at the idea of tracing the world's problems back to Genesis 3 and to sin. In fact, since the Enlightenment, since the Age of Reason, uh, much of our world, uh, much of Western thought at at the least, has has tried to to deny the objective presence of sin, the objective presence of evil. Uh, But I think we've got to look at it. Uh, Because if we don't, we will miss the root of what's wrong with the world. And any explanation that misses the root uh, is is not complete. It's oversimplified. Um, What Genesis 3 does in the biblical understanding of sin that begins to unfold there is it accounts, I think, for the complexity of our brokenness. Sin has a pervasive, comprehensive influence such that our world is much darker than we think it is, right? And our own hearts are much darker than we think they are. Will mentioned that about a week ago, a group of eight of us from Providence got back from Guatemala, and uh, there's a number of folks that were on our team from Guatemala. We're so happy to see our friends from Bannockburn and Grace Covenant that are here with us today uh, that went down to Guatemala with us, and it was a wonderful week. It was a wonderful trip. And uh, one of the things we did amongst many th- is we helped build two, we, and I helped, I use the word helped because we were the helpers of, to the builders of these two, these two homes, two houses, uh, which, you know, were eight by 16 foot cedar block, uh, or cinder block, uh, structures. Uh, they weren't really homes, but, um, we built these two houses and one of the houses we built was for a girl uh, named Maria. We call her Dulce Maria. And, uh, Uh, Dulce lives with her mom and her little sister, and her mom is deaf and mute. Uh, She cannot speak. She cannot hear. And uh, they were living in what uh, was kind of a hut made of plastic and some wood and some sheet metal for a roof and no door that would lock. Because her mom is deaf and mute, oftentimes at night men in the village would come in and take advantage of her, right, and her two daughters. And so we built this house so that she might have a door that would lock. And at the end of the week, on Friday, um, we have a little house dedication. And it's kind of the move the bus moment of the week, right? And uh, that dedication of Maria's house, that was the most emotional moment of the week for me. Because as we did it, I was praying, Lord, would you use this house to protect this mom and her two girls? And as she cut the ribbon Uh, for her house, she had a little bit of a, the mom had a little bit of a smile on her face, but I felt like her eyes were hollow. I mean, she was happy, uh, but she had been robbed of so much. She was so wounded. And I thought, you know, how do you talk about that? How can you even begin to explain something like that without talking about sin? without talking about evil in the world. What's going on in the hearts of those men that they think they can come in and take away someone's dignity like that? What's going on at the root of things? We've got to talk about sin and evil if we're going to make sense of the world and if we're going to make sense of our own hearts. And all the while, Genesis 3 is, is over here going, hey, look at me. i got some stuff to say about what's going on in the world. And so what we're going to do just for a few minutes Is look at some of the consequences of sin that we see in Genesis 3. Doesn't that sound fun? Aren't you glad you're here today for that? Hey, the gospel is not good news unless there's really, really bad news. And the really, really bad news is coming our way in Genesis 3. Um, What makes sin so devastating is it's relational. Sin is not just a legal infraction, sin is not just we broke some rules. We are deeply relational beings. We're created for relationship. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2, right? That's what we're made for. Because we are inherently relational, sin by necessity impacts all of our relationships. And that's the main big idea I want you to walk away with today. Here it is. Sin unravels every relationship in our life. It's an uncreation of all we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. Sin brings brokenness and destruction to every relationship we have. Uh, relationship with self, relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with the very creation itself. And I want to look at those four just quickly. We won't have time to do much justice to any of them, but we see them here, those four relationships that we have in our life. Let's look at relationship with self first and what sin does there. Uh, Verse 7, Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. If you just read that that phrase by itself, you think, man, that sounds really good. Sounds really positive. I mean, who doesn't want their eyes opened? It's illumination, right? I mean, Satan, two verses earlier in verse 5, had promised them what? If you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that little phrase, that's the fine print, knowing good and evil. You've got to read the fine print, man. The fine print, knowing good and evil. Evil? What is evil? They they don't know evil. Everything's been good up until this point. But Satan promises, eat this, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. And they eat it. And their eyes were opened. But it wasn't good. Satan told them just enough truth to get them to act. Verse 7, let me read it again. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. And they made themselves loincloths. They now saw themselves differently. Their nakedness, which was once a non-issue to them, uh, was now a cause of shame. This is a reversal of Genesis 2.25, where they were both naked and what? Unashamed. Uh, Their nakedness had not been an issue before. Sin, at this point, had laid them bare, and for the first time they felt it. They'd always been naked, but this was the first time they'd ever felt exposed. Because up until this point, their only mirror to know how they were doing in life was God himself. And so they looked to God as their mirror. And the reflection they kept getting back from God is, you're good. I made you. You're my child. I created in you my image. You're my image. You have great worth, great dignity. You're good. And they began to look down at this moment from that mirror and they began to look down at themselves, and they thought, oh, that's not good. I mean, I need to cover that. That is not good. I'd never uh, noticed this in Genesis 3. and read it so many times. But when I was reading it last week, I noticed that the first effect that the man and the woman felt from the fall, as the, at least as the story unfolds it here, the first effect that they felt was not alienation from God. It was alienation from self. Right? I mean, you you could probably argue that alienation from God happened first, but the thing that they felt first was alienation from self. Because nakedness is this idiom or this expression for shame. And all that shame means is that we have a lack of ease with who we are. I mean, deep down, all of us are uneasy with ourself at some level. The irony of what happens in this story is, is that in trying to self-govern, it just results in self-loathing in the man and the woman. So because of the fall, our relationship with self is now characterized by shame, by insecurity, by painful awareness of our inadequacy. And it's this cruel twist that sin brings. Sin, on the one hand, causes us to be obsessed with self, but on the other hand, it leaves us deeply dissatisfied with self, right? Right? Isn't that terrible? Just to give you kind of a silly example or illustration of this. Uh, Facebook, all right? And I'm right there with you on Facebook, right? I probably check my page possibly more than once a day, okay? Got Facebook. But can we all agree that Facebook will one day be considered uh, the monument to this generation's narcissism, right? It will be. Oh, look, a website just about me with lots of pictures of me and things that are interesting to me and opinions by me so you can know a little bit of me or at least the me that I'm willing to put out there for you. Well, you know what happens when you go on a trip, like my trip to Guatemala, uh, you get back and everybody starts posting all their pictures on Facebook. And so you end up getting tagged in lots of photos. And so you get those little enticing emails that say, you've been tagged in a photo, Right? And I, at that point, I'm like, well, I got to go look at that photo because I'm in that photo, right? And so I stop whatever I'm doing and I go and I look at that photo because I'm, I'm obsessed with myself. But then here's what happens. I get there and I think, oh, that's not so good. You know, I mean, do I really have that much gray kind of coming in on the sides here? I mean, what's up with the crow's feet when I smile? You know, am I looking that old seriously? Uh, You're not my mirror, so don't respond. Uh, Obsessed with self, deeply dissatisfied with self. Because of the fall, we have this painful awareness of our inadequacy. And so we do our best to cover up those inadequacies. We just make our own little fig leaves, which are just temporary fixes, and we we try to cover. And we are, and Will, I think, already mentioned it today, we're all covering stuff. Because we all feel inadequate about something. And, which is why we come, in a, we come to church, a place like this, and we look around and we think, oh, everybody's doing good but me. Everybody seems to have it together, but I know that I don't. That's because we, we're just all covering junk. And so let me ask you a question. How do you look in the mirror of your life and think, I need to cover that? I don't like my appearance, so I'll alter it. or I'll try to hide it. I don't like my personality, so I'll fake it or I'll try to be someone I'm not. I feel out of control in one area of my life, and so I'm going to just be high control and ordered in every other area of my life. I don't feel good about my accomplishments, so I'll exaggerate them so that they look a little better. Sin unravels relationship with self, okay? How about relationship with God? Look at verse 8. Sorry about the sniffles here. I think I brought a cold back from Guatemala. Um. Genesis 3, verse 8, relationship with God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I mean, could there be any sadder verse in the entire Bible than that one? I mean, the sadness of this verse lies, I think, in its potential intimacy. The Lord God was walking amongst them. Uh, Walking is just this Hebrew expression for friendship. If you walked with someone, you're their friend. And God is walking in their midst for relationship, for fellowship, for for friendship. And what do they do? They hide. They run off. And because of sin, the man and the woman have a relationship with God that's now marked by new realities. It's marked by fear because they know they disobeyed and they think there's going to be consequences. It's marked by delusion because they think they can hide from an omnipotent, omniscient God. It's like the kid who covers his face and thinks my parents can't see me because I can't see them. It's delusional. Their relationship with God is marked by distortion. They have twisted now and misrepresented the character of God and they, now they think their, their creator is coming to uncreate them, to squash them. When, in fact, they're the ones that have been uncreated themselves. And as we'll see next week when we look at redemption, we'll see that God is actually pursuing them to begin restoring them. He's not coming to squash them. Sin brings separation in our relationship with God. Uh, it brings spiritual brokenness. We could say that in that first relationship with self, we experience psychological brokenness, but sin also brings spiritual brokenness. Because of the fall, our relationship with God is now characterized by things like distrust, unbelief, fear, hiding. And hiding from God is not unique to Adam and Eve. It's actually something that people have done all through history, and it's something that we've experienced and we may be experiencing in parts of our lives uh, or most of our lives right now. There's a couple of extreme ways that we hide from God, and I think we can all relate to parts of these. Two ways we run and hide from God. One is irreligion. And the other is religion. Uh, Irreligion says, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to be my own God. I'm not not accountable to anyone, and so I'm going to break all the rules, and it doesn't matter because, you know, there's probably not a God anyway. That's irreligion. Uh, Maybe you've tried it. Maybe you have been trying it in part of your life, but here's the deal. If you are God's child, he's pursuing you in love, and you cannot outrun him. So you're just tiring yourself out, right? You're just hurting yourself with those choices because he will catch you in his love because he wants to restore you. And all the while, you're missing out on the relationship you were made for. Now, religion, on the other hand, says this. I'm going to make up for my sin. I'm going to earn his love back. I'm not doing that again. I'm I'm going to obey all the rules from this point forward. The irony about religion, though, is it also keeps God at a distance because it relies on self to make things right. Religion sees sin more as a ledger of rights and wrongs. You know, I need to get my credits to outweigh my debits, I need to get my assets to outweigh my liabilities, and I'll be okay. And religion forgets that sin is relational. We have sinned against an infinite personal God. How could our religious obedience ever repair that kind of breach, right? It would take an infinite personal God to repair that breach, and that's what he does in his grace and his mercy through Jesus. Um, But some of you are here today out of religious duty, right? But you're keeping the God who loves you at a distance. You're hiding behind the rules and the religious exercises, just like Adam and Eve are hiding behind the trees, and all the while, you're missing out on the relationship that you were made for. Sin unravels my relationship with God. How about my relationship with others? Look at verse 11 and 12, Genesis 3. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, by the way, you gave her to me, God, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So, do you see what sin introduces into our relationship with others? Blame, shirking responsibility, willingness to throw anyone else under the bus in order to justify ourselves. I mean, what is Adam doing? to his wife here. Just at the end of chapter 2, just a few verses earlier, Adam was singing poetry about his wife. He was singing at last. It's like not the Etta James song, the Adam song. At last. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is my girl. I love her. I'm with her forever. He's singing poetry about her. He's like one of those engaged couples that says, we are going to fall asleep in each other's arms every night for the rest of our lives. You know, because can't, you can't separate us because we love each other so much. And then about six months into it, they're kind of sleeping like this, right? Back to each other. Night. Good night. night. Love you. Love you. Okay. At this point, Adam's on the couch, right? Adam is sleeping on the couch tonight because he has just thrown his wife Under the bus. The one flesh community, the one flesh union of marriage that was formed in Genesis 2 is now just two self-interested individuals. The we has become an I. And all that Adam is doing is self-protecting. All that Adam is doing is justifying himself. It is self-righteousness is what we see in Adam here. I'm right. And if I'm not totally right, at least I'm more right than she is or than the other person is. And because of the fall, our relationship with others is now characterized by blame, by isolation, by comparison, by self-righteousness, by division rather than unity, and sin separates us from others, which we might call social brokenness, psychological brokenness, spiritual brokenness, social brokenness. I don't need to look any further than my own heart to illustrate this. When we were in Guatemala working, there was another group of Christians down there working. And you recognize them because they all wore the same t-shirts every day to go and work. And on the first morning at breakfast when they all came in wearing the same t-shirts, uh, I did not have the thought, praise Jesus. There is another group of beautiful brothers and sisters in Christ down here to serve the Lord and to serve the people of Guatemala with us. You know what my first thought was? I'm glad we don't have to wear goofy T-shirts like that. That's what I thought. I mean, Lord, help me, right? I mean, what's going on in my heart? What is the impulse deep in within me that wants to to divide myself from other people and say I'm better than you, or I I'm, I do it more right than you? It's sin. Sin always puts a wedge between people and divides them. Wedge, divide. So let me ask you this How do you separate yourself from others in order to justify yourself? I'm not like those people, it's their fault. I care more about the pain of my sin and what it does to my life than I do about what the pain of my sin creates in someone else's life. My choices are right. Or at least they're more right than their choices are. I mean, who are you willing to throw under the bus to justify yourself? Sin unravels my relationship with others. And then finally, sin affects our relationship with the creation itself. Look at verse 16 through 19. Genesis 3:16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. you are dust and to dust you shall return the bad news is, is if you hate the chore of dusting the dust wins right at least for the for the time being the dust appears to win what was to be our relationship with the creation from Genesis 1:28 well number 1 we were to be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, have children. Number two, we were to subdue the earth, to, have, to rule over it, to have dominion, to work the land, to be stewards of God's creation. It's just this po- moment of poetic justice that the very place where the fall hurts us is in those two areas, being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion over the earth. Sin did not bring about our mission and purpose in the world as human beings. Sometimes we think, well, we have a mission as Christians because there's so much sin in the world. No, we had mission and purpose given to us by God at creation. Sin just makes our mission and purpose much more complicated, much more difficult. So in verse 16, when God's addressing the woman, he's not just talking about the act of childbearing, childbirth being painful. Uh, The word childbearing here literally means conception. And the best understanding of the verse, as I read about it this week, is this. Uh, This verse is talking about the whole process of having and raising children from conception forward, and it's saying it's going to be painful. Not just physically painful, emotionally painful. Toil. And so having children, this thing that is a blessing, we'll also refer to it as labor. I mean, we use that word, a woman goes into labor. Labor. In verses verses 17 through 19, God's addressing the man. And it's interesting, he mentions the, the word eating five different times. Because Adam ate from the tree that God told him not to eat from, eating is going to be really difficult from this point forward. Working the ground, having dominion over the earth so that we can get food is going to be painful. So eating, which is a blessing, is now characterized by labor. And so because of the fall, our relationship with the creation is now characterized by pain, by difficulty, and by toil. And we might call this physical brokenness. Psychological, spiritual, social, physical brokenness. I saw this physical brokenness in Guatemala in ways that I'm just, frankly, not used to um, worked in this village, Pueblo Modelo, which is a tiny little village characterized by poverty, scarcity, food is scarce, but a lot of the people grow their own food. You know, you look outside their little shanties and just whatever little plot of ground they have. They might have some corn stalks or, you know, some, we planted some fruit trees to help give them fruit. Problem with that is having a corn stalk out back is not like having a stocked fridge. You know, when I get hungry, I go downstairs and I'm like, what am I going to eat today? Right? Uh, but you got corn stalks. I mean, that stuff has to grow. It's just not readily available. And so they are eking out their meals. And uh, Nelson, who's not here today but was on our team, he remarked one day when we were driving back, he said, you know, this, this experience has really shed new light on the, the prayer, you know, give us today our daily bread. Uh, because we have, in many ways, removed ourselves a little bit from that aspect of the fall. And most of us don't feel this way about food because food is just abundant and instant gratification. Here's the deal though. Even though food is plenteous for most of us, we cannot escape the fact that work is difficult. What it takes to earn money to put food on the table is labor. Long hours, difficult bosses, broken copy machines, office politics, Complex problems, boredom, travel, cubicles, you name it. Work is difficult because our relationship with the creation is broken, which means our God given purpose of being stewards of the earth uh, is very difficult. So, in our world and maybe even in our own lives, we see things, we see that there's distortions of our relationship to the creation. There's workaholism, there's laziness. There's the exploiting and abusing of workers. There's the exploiting and abusing of nature. Uh, There's treating children as if they're a problem or they're a nuisance. On the other hand, there's the idolization of children. There's hunger, there's poverty, there's difficulty, and then the dust wins. Sin unravels my relationship with the creation. The fall impacts every relationship we have with self, with God, with others, with the creation. And it's this complex ecosystem where every relationship affects the other. Sin has distorted them all and they all impact one another, right? So if I'm, if I'm alienated from God, then I'm gonna be insecure about self. And if I'm insecure about self, then I'm gonna relate to others in ways that are wrong. Maybe I'm just gonna try to impress others, which means I may put all my worth and my value into my performance at work. And I'm gonna, so I'm gonna start relating to my work wrongly, uh, rather than for the glory of God and resting in Him, right? And, you know, the circle goes around. It's a, it's a complex ecosystem. Um, so what's our problem? Is it, is it psychological? Is it spiritual? Is it social? Is it physical? Well, yes. It's all of the above, any solution, any interpretation of what's wrong with the world that doesn't take into account the root issues and that type of complexity is missing the comprehensive nature and the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is comprehensively devastating. All right? It's pretty bleak. Is that bleak enough? Is there any hope or is there any good news in the midst of this? I want to say yes, there's actually a ton of redemption that happens right in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at that more next week. We're going to unpack it uh, more next week. But I want to end today by just looking at verse 15, just for a second. Look at Genesis 3.15, because it's a glimpse of hope right here in the account of the fall. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This uh, verse is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium just means the first good news, the first gospel. Right here in the midst of the account of the fall is the first hint of redemption, the first Good news, And what the good news is, is that out of all the descendants that are going to come forth from the woman, there's going to come one descendant who will crush the head of Satan. And so it's like a snake gets loose in the house and one man representing the entire family goes in after the snake and he finds the snake and he stomps on the snake's head so that the snake dies. But in the process, the snake bites his heel and then the man dies. The first Adam in this account, should have stomped on that snake's head. He should have taken care of it right then and there, right? But he didn't. We know that the last Adam, which is another word name for Jesus in the New Testament, the last Adam stomps on the snake's head. He defeats him. But in the process, the last Adam dies. But because the last Adam was resurrected from the dead, we know that the last Adam has power over death, We know that the last Adam is the only one who can reverse all the consequences of the fall, and we know that the last Adam is the only one who can ensure that the dust does not win. Jesus brings comprehensive salvation. He deals with sin not just at a surface level, I forgive your sins kind of way. He deals with sin comprehensively. Through Jesus, we're given a new self, created in the image of God. Through Jesus, we have peace with God. We're no longer alienated from Him, nor does He condemn us anymore. Through Jesus, we're reconciled to others, even our enemies, even the people that aren't like us. In the New Testament, you see Jews and Gentiles hanging out in unity together, which is miraculous. And through Jesus, we can live out our calling. We can work to the glory of God Because we know that one day he will redeem the entire creation. He will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And in that place, uh, there will be no sin. There will be no pain, no difficulty, no problems, no labor, no death. And the reversal of the fall will be complete. The last Adam will set right all that sin has set wrong. Amen? It's good news. We'll talk more about redemption a little more closely from Genesis 3 next week. Let me pray, and then we'll take communion together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.